Chapter 10, Part 2 of The Psychology of Alcoholism by George Barton Cuton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Religious Conversion as a Cure What has been said regarding the physical is but an analogy drawn from the psychical, from the state of exhaustion and the evident endeavor to transfer the ego to the side of the forces of the good, with the help of additional motives advanced either by friends or by the self. Consciously or not, the transfer is made, and once made, the devil forces retreat. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. With the weakening and expulsion of the evil forces, there comes that unity of the ideals, feelings, and volitions, in fact the whole of life, which is a characteristic feeling in the conversion process. Professor James speaks of the conversion climax as follows. Let us hereafter, in speaking of the hot places in a man's consciousness, the group of ideas to which he devotes himself and from which he works, call it the habitual center of his personal energy, it makes a great difference to a man whether one set of his ideas or another be the center of his energy. And it makes a great difference as regards any set of ideas which he may possess, whether they become central or remain peripheral in him. To say that a man is converted means in these terms that a religious idea previously peripheral in his consciousness now take a central place and that religious aims form the habitual center of his energy. Now, if you ask of psychology just how the excitement shifts in a man's mental system and why aims that were peripheral become at a certain moment central, psychology has to reply that although she can give a general description of what happens, she is unable in a given case to account accurately for all the single forces at work. Neither an outside observer nor the subject who undergoes the process can explain fully how particular experiences are able to change one center of energy so decisively or why they so often have to bide their hour to do so. The struggle and victory may be toward an end which is distinctly defined or it may be very confused, but it is against the old and for the new very clearly, and what we call self-surrender of the old may be as well named the acceptance of the new. It depends on the standpoint from which we view it. It may be further expressed or defined by saying that the desire and affection for the new life, or for God, or for Jesus, are so overpowering as to drive out all baser motives or ideas. The self-surrender or religious victory is frequently shown first by a desire to proclaim the change which has been experienced in what is called confession or testimony. Logically following self-surrender is faith. This is a condition of mind shown by its attitude towards all truth consistent with its lately formed determination to accept the new life. This condition is one of receptivity toward the good, while logically these can be separated. In reality it is difficult indeed impossible to draw the line between them, for they are both factors of a process, and these factors are so interwoven as to be inseparable. Faith could be defined as the acceptance of certain elements of the Christian life, as a belief in salvation, as believing that you are saved. But is not this the very point in self-surrender, accepting the new believing in one's own salvation? If they do not coincide, the distinction might be made thus. Self-surrender is the beginning of a process of which faith is the continuance. 
both self-surrender and faith have a large effective element. The change effected by this whole process is great, whether it has come gradually or suddenly, regardless of what mental element may seem to dominate or what is the immediate antecedent of the change. Relieved of a great burden, as some express it, there is a feeling of peace and happiness in the unity achieved. Although psychologically the process of religious conversion does not stand alone, it is by far the most common of its class, and perhaps on account of this seems more closely related to normal processes. In everyday life we find mental experiences analogous to each factor of the conversion experience, and sometimes to the whole process. While there may be at times abnormal elements in conversion, it conforms more closely to the experiences of everyday life than one at first supposes. And why not? Are we not being converted more or less every day? Do we not break old habits and receive new revelations of truth that change us daily, making us different persons indeed today from what we were yesterday? Here again the difference should be emphasized. Religious conversion, in contradistinction from other experiences, comprehends the whole mental life. The result of conversion, or perhaps we could better say, the final part of the process, differs with different individuals. One experience which is very common is the feeling of newness, and properly so when we consider the change involved. The convert lives in a new world because he sees everything from a new point of view, Everything appears beautiful, and the world calls forth exclamations of admiration. The convert suddenly becomes an optimist of the most pronounced type. He wonders why he did not see the good in every person and thing before, and a smile is upon his face because he sees the beautiful significance of all things. This newness brings him joy and freedom, partially because he feels justified, as if his sins were forgiven and he had come into harmony with God and the world. It is the joy and freedom of the prisoner released from his bonds. He may appear overjoyful, ultra-confident, and super-optimistic, but he is sure that he is normal, and wonders why others fail to experience as much joy as he. He feels confident that it will never decrease, that he will always be equally happy. The feelings, no doubt, fluctuate from time to time and become much calmer, but the attitude towards the new life and the old remains constant. Religion thus acts in a double way on the feelings. It does arouse them, but it also aids to calm them. They may become much excited, but there is also in religion the motives for control. Luba compares the experience of newness to that felt by the youth who has sung for the first time his love tale to his lady and receives the assurance of requited love. The afflicted one who has walked through a dark passage and suddenly comes to the light, and this is undoubtedly true. To reiterate, conversion is not unlike the experiences of everyday life. Mr. Luba also suggests, as an explanation of this phenomena, changes in the physiological processes. He makes as a conjecture, and no one can do more than conjecture, the following. We might rest content with the explanation that we have to do with an emotional delusion in which the affective state colors external sense impressions, but we can perhaps make another suggestion in this wise. The conversion crisis may be supposed to have 
for physiological counterpart a redistribution of energy involving general modifications of the association paths or an alteration of rhythms changing the nervous regime it is natural enough to admit that to a psychic turmoil so intense as that of conversion corresponds a no less considerable physiological commotion setting up a new arrangement of the motor mechanism we know the alcoholic to be the embodiment of selfishness but when he is converted the broadening of his horizon is shown most plainly here for he comes into close sympathy with the world outside he is a part of wider life for which he must work and for which he feels a great attachment he is capable of self-sacrifice which would astonish anyone acquainted with him in his alcoholic days this element may show itself in connection with the greater freedom of which we speak above it may really be a great factor in bringing it about coupled with this in what may at first seem to be a contradictory principle is an awakening of the self the self-consciousness is magnified and the convert feels his importance this does not take the old form of trying to make everyone and everything work together to satisfy his petty selfish desires but he is important in the advancement of the world along the road of righteousness no longer is he looked down upon he is a man and recognizes it no more is he held in bondage he is free from all men and from himself he is master where he used to be servant he is ruler where he was serf one can easily see that the form of awakening of the self does not minister to selfishness but rather annihilates it in no way is the lack of selfishness so noticeable as in the changed attitude towards his family and friends and this in turn is an assistance to him in his struggle against his enslaving habit there is a reinforcement of altruistic feelings and impulses and his natural affections are stirred the indifference which he formerly showed to the misery and grief of his family has vanished and he recognizes the claims which the members have upon him another motive is hereby furnished for his abstinence and reform and he becomes a natural husband and father similar to his pre-alcoholic days the other natural impulses are revived such as his duty to the state as a citizen and this is also an additional reason for his change of habits all motives however insignificant they may appear to the onlooker are of great importance to the person who has to weigh the smallest action in the balance lest by association or suggestion it may lead him to the bondage which he has so recently escaped a characteristic of the new life we might say a part also of the conversion process is a revival of cheerfulness courage and hope this is closely connected with the feeling of newness and is especially helpful to the alcoholic when free from alcohol when approximately sober the alcoholic is depressed and discouraged he sees no future except a drunkard's life in a drunkard's grave little use for him to strive and struggle he could not conquer he has tried and failed and he decides not to try again for there is nothing ahead of him except failure and degradation his only pleasure is negative he can down his sorrow and drink but at conversion he is filled with joy and hope for he is free and the future is bright and promising no longer he trudges along with head downcast and heart heavy no longer he feels the future 
he is encouraged and therefore brave the coward of yesterday is the hero of today he fears neither men nor demons he is strong in his newly found love and friendship and unshaken in his determination and hope this is an important element in the change which comes to him enabling him to battle against the habit which he has feared and striven against in vain this encouragement and hope give the alcoholic confidence in himself and this from a suggestive standpoint is half the battle he knows now that he can accomplish what before he thought impossible and going forth with this confidence he is greatly helped it is a matter in which others can do nothing it depends upon him and the expectancy with which he starts out is the harbinger of the result this confidence which he has in himself is largely due to the expectation of help from god which help according to his testimony is duly provided he expects to be guided in a way that shall lead him away from temptation and to be given strength to overcome the strongest desire for alcohol to say that this is suggestion is probably true but to say that it is suggestion only is doing violence to the united testimony of thousands whose evidence is as valuable as any in the land of one of the chief consequences of conversion in what undoubtedly seems the most miraculous one is complete annulling of the lower temptations and in the particular case of the alcoholic the appetite for alcohol which for years was irresistible the fact is marvelous but none the less true and may be shown by references to many cases we might expect a condition where the man would be strengthened so that when the appetite was strongest and the craving had returned he would by a great effort be able to withstand it but in so many cases it is not this way the appetite is gone without a trace in the description of conversion the feelings and intellect have been referred to but the will has seemed to play no part lest the fact should be misrepresented let us devote a little space to the discussion of the will in conversion for it is an important factor conversion shows very plainly what a great effect a mental crisis has upon an almost totally destroyed will the will is necessary and the alcoholic must work as well as pray as mr stanley says thus man by appealing to the rain god instead of using scientific means to promote rainfall or to supply lack of irrigation has hindered his development for centuries so the alcoholic must put forth some effort however small to help himself if he wishes external aid here again we have a seeming paradox if self-surrender means anything at all it certainly means the giving up of the personal will the convert then has no voice in the matter he is led he does not lead he seems to sink will and all into a more comprehensive mind which bears him resistlessly along it will be remembered that we had the same apparent paradox in regard to the self and there he came to himself in the process and felt his importance in self-consciousness probably before this in the process and it may be as the cause of this we have the awakening of the will awakening as though from a long sleep the sleep of years and thoroughly refreshed it takes its rightful position and begins to assume control of course it is understood that by the will is meant the self as willing 
The effort of the will in the direction of the good is felt by all the other mental faculties and gives direction to the turn which the whole self is to take. And consciously, as well as subconsciously, its work is valuable and shows in every part of the process. Ribo evidently does not give the will much credit in the process, for he looks upon it very much like a fixed idea or an irresistible impulse. This seems a little extreme, and although they are undoubtedly allied phenomena in some respects, there is more conscious purpose and definite will displayed in conversion than in the fixed idea, and in the general process there seems a well-defined line of demarcation. Flater gives the place of the will in conversion as follows. Proceeding to ask how the consciousness of redemption is arrived at, we are struck at the outset by a remarkable statement which recurs regularly in the history of religion in connection with such tendencies, viz., that instruction and theoretical reflection do not of themselves suffice to produce religious faith, but that it rests on processes of feeling that reach down to the depths of the soul and point to its mysterious nature and origin. Such practical truths as have power to determine the life and the ideals of life are of this nature, can never be known theoretically only. There may be knowledge about them, even a notional apprehension of their meaning, but they are not known in the full sense of knowledge, so long as they are not experienced as a living power in the heart. This experience may not always be equally profound and clear, but the full decisive experience comes about only when the will lays hold of itself of the truth, by the power of which it feels itself laid hold of, appropriates it, recognizes it, takes it up into the heart as the ruling power and dearest possession of life, in short, where the saving truth is appropriated in living faith. But how can the will come to appropriate a truth which requires of it the abnegation of its own natural and personal desires? The will is not able to take upon itself the pain so long as the activity of its natural desires is productive entirely or predominantly of pleasure. But this is not permanently the case. For this the divine wisdom and justice in the natural and moral world order has sufficiently provided. Gone is the painful sense of sin for the cause of it. The disunion of self-will with the divine will has been removed. The New Testament is not a textbook on psychology, but it is one on religion and it is worth noticing that it lays considerable emphasis on the work of the will in the process of conversion. The will is a factor, and an important factor, both in passive and active, the positive and negative work required of it. Early in this chapter, it was said that little could be definitely stated concerning the divine element in conversion, since by its nature it could not be scientifically analyzed. But because we cannot analyze it, it does not follow that it is unreasonable to believe it. We can do no better at this point than to present two brief quotations from Professor James. To plead the organic causation of religious state of mind, then, in refutation of its claims to possess superior spiritual value, it is quite illogical and arbitrary, unless one have already worked out in advance some psychophysical theory connecting spiritual values in general with determinate sorts of physiological change. 
otherwise none of our thoughts and feelings not even our scientific doctrines not even our disbeliefs could retain any value as revelation of the truth for every one of them without exception flows from the state of their possessor's body at the time psychology and religion are both in perfect harmony up to this point since both admit that there are forces seemingly outside of the conscious individual that bring redemption to his life nevertheless psychology defining these forces as subconscious and speaking of their effect as due to incubation or cerebration implies that they do not transcend the individual's personality and herein she diverges from christian theology which insists that they are direct supernatural operations of the deity the mistake is frequently made of holding that if we have explained the way in which the mind operates in conversion we have thereby eliminated the supernatural or rather we should say the divine element as well might we say when we have described the law of nature we have proved therefore that nature requires no power to operate the elements which conform to this law simply because we know how it is operated or that when we know how the machine works it therefore needs no power to operate it flaterer from the standpoint of philosophy speaks very decidedly as follows this wonderful change is not arbitrarily brought about by man himself but experienced as a thing that has happened to him it appears to him as the operation of a higher power as the gift of undeserved divine favor of grace and is this not in truth the case careful thought in fact can do nothing but confirm what the believer holds as a truth requiring no proof mr everett defines religion as a feeling toward a supernatural presence manifesting itself in truth goodness and beauty this makes religion a purely psychological matter but his subject leads him to do so if however there is a feeling toward a supernatural presence on our part is it unnatural or unreasonable that that presence should respond to our gropings the testimony of the individual experiencing the conversion even admitting that it is not the best ought to be worth as much probably more than the opinion of a person entirely unacquainted with religion there is in so many cases a feeling of power from without a testimony of experience directly opposed to the psychological theory as we may call it recognizing the objection which was made at the beginning of so many persons being unable to read or write their physical experiences yet there is no testimony to the contrary and the experience of those who witness concerning it is more valuable than the ideas of those who simply theorize about it as the last topic in this chapter the part played by the subconscious will be discussed and therein the relation of this religious experience to hypnotism and suggestion there seems to be not the least doubt that the subconscious is an important factor in the process of religious conversion to say this is only to state a fact which again confirms one of the main contentions of this chapter viz that religious conversion deals with the whole man but to say that conversion has to deal with the subconscious is only to misrepresent the facts with like stimuli it is known that persons react differently on account of the difference in the operation of their mental processes in their temperament we say persons who have sudden conversions have them rather than the gradual ones not because it just happens that way but because they are so constituted 
that the religious influences react in that way. If we know the person psychologically, we can prophesy quite correctly the type of his conversion, whether it be sudden or gradual, quiet or excited. This is simply saying that of conversion we may know scientific facts which admit of classification. The divine element is not eliminated because we can do this. This has no bearing on this subject. For whether the power which causes conversion is autonomous or divine, it conforms to one type when it passes through one variety of mold. It is rather an argument for the divine element than it is orderly. Professor Coe, who has made the most exhaustive examination of the subject of which the writer knows, gives three sets of factors favorable to the attainment of a striking, and therefore of a sudden religious transformation. There are as follows, a certain temperament, expectation, and a tendency to automatisms, and passive suggestibility. Given these three known quantities, the unknown type, the type of conversion, can be predicted. In the cases which were thoroughly examined, those who experienced a great transformation, almost without exception, expected the change. Of these, 70% were of such a temperament that sensibility predominated. 12% had intellect in the ascendancy, and 18% will. Further of these, 82% were of sanguine or melancholic temperament. We therefore see from these investigations that the temperament favorable to sudden or striking conversion is sanguine or melancholic, with sensibility predominating. The majority of these has exhibited some automatic phenomena as, example given, hallucinations, and these correspond almost exactly with the passives in hypnotic experiments. Of course, the number of cases examined was small, and necessarily so, on account of the thoroughness of the examination. And although there were too few to warrant us in making too sweeping generalization, they correspond so closely with what we should naturally expect that they must have considerable weight. We can now see why, apart from the fact that if the alcoholic is to be cured, the break with this controlling habit must necessarily be sharp and abrupt. His conversion is a sudden one. We know that his intellect and will are so impaired that he is largely a creature of his feeling and can be classed primarily among those with sensibility predominating. In temperament, so far as one can be arbitrarily classified as belonging to any one temperament, the alcoholic is melancholic. We know alcoholics to be passives, for a class they are more easily hypnotized than the average, and on account of their disease are subject to automatisms, being victims of hallucinations and vivid dreams. This gives all the elements that Professor Coe demands for a sudden and striking conversion, except the expectation. This must be left to the investigation of the individual case, but it would seem that if the alcoholic's hope is an escape from suffering, if he knows anything of the necessity of a sudden break with the habit, and most of them do recognize this, and if he comes under mission preaching, which is the style usually most effective with him, he must therefore expect this sudden and striking change. If this is so, we furnish Professor Coe with another illustration of his classification. With the convert who has come into life in a sudden and abrupt way, the conscious element in the process is undoubtedly large. This is shown by comparative scarcity or absence of the intellectual and volitional element at the time of the climax. 
and the inability of the convert to give his reasons for the change, the very little self-direction at the time, and the abruptness of the decision with few or no motives, the conscious and the subconscious interact, and in no case of conversion, however deliberate, is the subconscious element eliminated any more than the conscious element is absent in sudden conversion, but the proportion of the two varies. What shows itself as a sudden development in consciousness is undoubtedly the result of a subconscious development which suddenly ripens and thrusts itself into consciousness, apparently ready-made, but of what this process, this development, in the subconscious area is, and of its cause, we are entirely ignorant, and our guesses will depend upon our point of view. Now, it is plain that if God operates in the human mind in conversion, that is, if there is such a thing as a divine element in conversion, it must be largely through the subconscious, and especially is this true in cases of sudden conversion. This being so, we must recognize the similarity between these cases and hypnotism, whether we wish to or not. In fact, some persons in relating their conversion experiences necessarily couple with them a hypnotic element, as example given. It seems to me now hypnotic. There has been a great objection to the recognition of this relation among some religious people, not because they were in a position to confute the statement, but because they considered it detrimental to Christianity on account of the ill repute of hypnotism. On the other hand, because some persons, not particularly jealous for the good name of Christianity, have seen a relation between conversion and hypnotism, they have identified the two. The position that appeals to the writer is the mean. He recognizes both the similarity and the difference. True, we recognize the almost total similarity in some revivals where methods are employed which a trained hypnotist might well eschew, but it is unfair to class all conversions as revival conversions, or all revival conversions as of this objectionable stamp. Even admitting the hypnotic and suggestive element in most alcoholic conversions, for undoubtedly it is there, it is not the use of it, but the abuse of it that is objectionable. The same thing can be said of many other forces that at times are abused. For instance, there is a certain authority which religion can justly claim on account of its nature. The use of this is justifiable, but oh, what abuses have been wrought in its name, Mr. Granger says concerning hypnotism and conversion. We are now prepared to take up a topic referred to before conversion by hypnotic suggestion. The reader will perhaps remember that, in other kinds of conversion, there was a more or less prolonged period of preparation for the change, as the soul came to harmony of intellectual judgment or to peace after stress. As against these modes, instantaneous conversion seems explicable by saying that the mind is occupied by suggestion when it is in a suggestible state, when, that is, it is subject to neurasthenia. It is fortunate, of course, that the same nervous weakness which lays a man open to control by passing impulses should now and then subject him to a good impulse. But this weakness is not a normal state, and there is something inexpressibly repulsive in the idea that the religious life should necessarily begin in this way. 
Jesus did not so view conversion. The writer does not feel the same repulsion concerning the matter, which Mr. Granger apparently does. If, as some would have it, the hypnotic or suggestive element were eliminated, religion would lose thereby. We do not recognize the part that the subconscious plays in our everyday life, or we would see to eliminate this would be to confine religion necessarily to a lesser part of man's nature, instead of holding its present important position of affecting the whole man, conscious and subconscious. If this is a weakness, Mr. Granger says, it is a weakness that he shares with the rest of mankind, for no one is free from it, and however much it may be deprecated, its importance in the mental processes is profound. If it is true, as was said above, when God works in man, he works through the subconscious. These subconscious factors should be lauded rather than deprecated. Further, the wisdom of having these subconscious factors so prominent in conversion is apparent because the greater stability of the change thereby. Were it in the mental and not deeply rooted in the physical, the passing change of circumstances would bring about a corresponding change in the desires, and what promised to become a permanent change would be temporarily only. Here is to be found the distinction between the purely hypnotic and pseudo-conversion, and the real conversion. When the subject awake, he wonders what it all meant, and laughs at the thought of the part he played in the revival. Or else it may last for a week or a month, and then fade away, but the true conversion takes the permanent hold of the whole man. With cases like the alcoholics, the fact that the conversion has roots in the physical is doubly fortunate insomuch that the disease to be cured has its hold in the same part of our being, as here we have perhaps a further reason why conversion has been so successful as a cure. Nor can the writer agree with Mr. Granger that Jesus did not recognize and use the subconscious element in conversion. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the voice thereof, but canst thou not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth? So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Canst not tell whence it cometh because it enters through the subconscious. It is certain that most of the conversions of Jesus were instantaneous, and most of his cures were of the same kind. To say that both of these were of divine origin par excellence does not explain how they worked in the human mind, or contrarywise, to say that they were of subconscious character does not detract in the least from their divine significance. The same can be said of the apostles who followed Jesus. Peter, who knew well the methods of Jesus, gives us one of the best examples of healing of a suggestive or hypnotic character which we have anywhere. Peter fastens his eyes on a lame man and demands that the man look at him, and his companion, Peter being the spokesman, the man not being able to look at both at once, must have looked at him. Here is the first condition of hypnotic suggestion, fixation of attention, and it is aided by that most powerful ally, the fixation of the eyes. We are told that the man gave heed unto them. Peter begins to speak and ends by commanding abruptly, Walk, following up this verbal suggestion with a dramatic one, he takes the man by the right hand and lifts him up.
Could any trained hypnotist have done it better? Yet this does not explain the power at the back of it. Giving the suggestive treatment all its due, we have yet to explain how the congenitally lame, grown to manhood, could be cured. For this exceeds all feats of suggestive treatment known to science. And even supposing that we have some functional disease which easily yields to hypnotic treatment, the divine element is none the more eliminated. Paul's work at Paphos was evidently of a similar character. This is sufficient to show that the disciples, and Jesus also, did not deny the employment of the subconscious elements and methods which might be considered of a partially hypnotic character, so much as some of the followers today. They used them, not abused them. Now the altruism, which is thus seen to be the gist of all mental healing, is the very essence of Christianity. Religion has in it all there is in mental therapeutics, and has in its best form. It teaches temperance in the broadest sense, high ideals and dependence upon the highest alone. This preserves those who know it, by practice as well as by precept, from most of the ills that make up the list of those curable by mental methods. But further, it teaches a wise submission to the inevitable, a freedom from care and worry, and a spirit of hopefulness, and these are the exact conditions aimed at by all mental practices. Living up to these ideals will do everything for us that can be done. The cure of the drunkard in conversion is one peculiar to itself, but which contains elements found in hypnotic and allied practices, and it necessarily must if it embraces the whole man in its scope. The manner of the conversion we can partially describe and explain, but the power at the back of it remains a mystery. Those who claim it is divine have much both a philosophical and theological nature to warrant them in their contention, and from a psychological standpoint it is admissible. Conversion is not alone of religious experiences to use as subconscious, for it is employed in such experiences as inspiration and revelation. In religious conversion, then, we have the most efficacious cure of alcoholism. This is scientifically established. The reasons for this are that, apart from the divine element, there is instilled a desire for reform, and a change of associations and an emotional substitute are provided. Different from other cures, religion is concerned with the whole man, and thus is capable of reaching a deep-seated trouble. The escape from physical misery is a powerful motive, greater than that of escape from sin or future punishment. When self-surrender places the charge of the self and the power of the best impulses, the subconsciousness works a wonderful change in the entire system, and frequently there is never a desire for another drink. The divine element, although inexplicable, is clearly established and cannot be explained away. End of chapter 10, part 2